This message was recorded at Fillmore Baptist Church in Princeton, Louisiana. Our goal is to faithfully preach the Word of God for the salvation of sinners, the strengthening of believers, and the glory of God. Please visit our website at www.fillmorebaptist.org and listen for more information at the conclusion of this message. Uh, if y'all would, would you turn to, uh, to Matthew 14? That's what we'll read from this morning. Uh, the 14th chapter of Matthew. Uh, we'll start in verse 22. And we'll read, down, we'll read down through the end of the chapter. 22 through 36. Matthew 14, verse 22. Uh, would you stand? Yeah. Immediately, Jesus made his disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side while he sent the multitudes away. And when he had sent the multitudes away, he went up on the mountain by himself to pray. Now, when evening came, he was alone there. But the boat was now in the middle of the sea, tossed by the waves, for the wind was contrary. Now, on the fourth watch of the night, Jesus went to them walking on the sea. And when the disciples saw him walking on the sea, they were troubled, saying, It is a ghost. And they cried out for fear. But immediately Jesus spoke to them, saying, Be of good cheer, it is I, do not be afraid. And Peter answered him and said, Lord, if it is you, command me to come to you on the water. So he said, Come. And when Peter had come down out of the boat, he walked on the water to go to Jesus. But when he saw that the wind was boisterous, he was afraid. And beginning to sink, he cried out, saying, Lord, save me. And immediately Jesus stretched out his hand and called him and said, O you of little faith, why did you doubt? And when they got into the boat, the wind ceased. Then those who were in the boat came and worshipped him, saying, Truly, you are the Son of God. When they had crossed over, they came to the land of Gennesaret, And when the men of that place recognized him, they sent out into all that surrounding region, brought to him all who were sick, and begged him that they might only touch the hem of his garment. And as many as touched it were made perfectly well. Let's pray. Lord, we... Come again in the name of Jesus, uh, Lord, uh, again, asking for your enablement here. Enable us to see what, uh, what Matthew, what the Holy Spirit is communicating in this passage. Enable us to see a glimpse of you and all your majesty and power and glory as this passage reveals it. May we see that so that we have a better understanding of who you are and of your nature May we see in this passage, Lord, Your your love for Your people. Your control over all things. Lord, may our view of You grow as we're exposed to Your Word and as we consider the truth that it brings us. Father, we need your help in these things. We need your enabling power because of our dullness. Like the disciples here who had a little faith. Lord, we don't believe on you as we should. So we pray by your power, by your Spirit, grant that we may hear, perceive, and receive your truth. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. You can be seated. <clears throat> you know, that's actually an amazing thing. You don't, you don't have to be old <laughs> chronologically. I mean, in, in year, it, it's, well, it's a, it, you're born the old man. That's, 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 a strange thing, isn't it? If you think about it, but you're, that's that's the condition you're born in, the old man. So yeah, you you can be saved at a young age and still say the old man is dead. <laughs> the old man is dead. Put off the old man. Put on the new man who's 
created in the image of Christ. Um, just a few things to consider here this, this morning. This is kind of a lengthy uh, passage, but Lord willing, we'll, uh, we'll get uh, through it. I, I wanted to try to take it all together. Um, who, do you, who do you say that Jesus is? Now, I know that, well, that question doesn't come up till chapter 16. But that's, that's where we're moving toward. And as we've mentioned several times, uh, this, is, this is the reason Matthew writes um, concerning Jesus. This is the reason that Mark and Luke and John write so that we might believe, so that we know, and so that knowing we might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. Not, not merely a son, not a son, and all of us in one sense could say that we're sons of God. God is the creator of all things, so there is, there is a sense in which I would say uh, God is the father of all in the sense that he created all things. And then uh, a, a more uh, fascinating truth, you know, if you think in spiritual terms, as Christians we can say that we're children of God. So we're sons of God. Um, because we've been brought into the family of God. We've been redeemed by His grace. If you're a believer here this morning, then you know Him as Father. But in the sense that we're talking about here, and none of us can, can claim sonship. In, in the sense that Jesus is the Son of God, he, he is that uniquely, the only begotten, the only unique Son of God. The only one who can say, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. The only one who can say, I always do those things that please Him. There was a book years ago, and how many of you have read uh, Evidence That Demands a Verdict? Leslie? You're the only one? I haven't read it either. <laughs> but I understand it's good for the most part. Um, it's, it's apologetics is what it is. He's making the case that Jesus is who He claimed to be. Well, uh, I'm, I'm not going down that road this morning really apologetically, but I, but I, I want to borrow the title. Evidence demands a verdict. Because again, as, as we've been moving through the Gospel of Matthew, that's what we, we see. Matthew is continually bringing forth, by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit... He is continually bringing forth evidence and presenting it to his readers that Jesus is indeed the Son of God, the Messiah, the Son of God, the Messiah, capital M, the Christ, capital C, the One, the coming One. And so he's, he's just, again, repeatedly pointed us to uh, evidence of that with all of the miracles. And then we, we kind of, we, in, in the last few chapters, we, we, I don't want to say uh, went down a different path. We really didn't. But he, but he just focused on uh, Jesus' teaching. We, we went through some discourses. You know, Jesus uh, being opposed by the, uh, the Jews, the scribes and the Pharisees, and his responses to them. But I would still put that in the category of, Evidence that he was truly who he said he was. And we can say, uh, like some of his hearers did at one point, no man ever spoke like this before. I think one of the... Well, let me say it this way. I, I haven't run across too many unbelievers that have actually read the Bible. There are some. But, but, you know, concerning unbelievers, they seem to be in the minority. The, the words, the Word of God testifies to who Jesus is. His works testify to who He is. And so we, get, we kind of come back to that this morning. And we talk about the different ways that manifests. You know, His, his power over demons. He casts out demons. His power over disease. He heals people instantly. Um, his, his words, like I was just, were just referring to, um, I think it's in Luke 4 where they say, it says, uh, Luke says that they, 
they heard the gracious words that flowed from his lips. So even that was an evidence of his authority and power. And his works, and we come back to that this morning, his power over, this time, again, his power over nature. Now, let me just pick up in verse 22. Um, Matthew here uses a word that, uh, that Mark loves to use. You'll see this word immediately, <laughs> immediately, again and again and again in Mark. It's like there's, there's, there's always a, uh, you know, some, some uh, kind of he's being hasty. There's always kind of like keep things moving. Immediately, immediately, there's always urgency. And Matthew uses it here a couple of times. Verse 22, immediately Jesus made... His disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side while he sent the multitudes away. Now, why did he do that? Or why is it immediately after what? Well, this is, this is immediately following the feeding of the 5,000. Or uh, the 5,000 men. We don't know. Uh, there were probably upwards to 10,000 people there that Jesus just fed. Uh, a great miracle. A great testimony, again, to his, his power and authority. Great testimony of his compassion. He saw the, saw the crowd. He saw the need. He, he did something about it. But to take uh, a few fish and a few loaves and feed a multitude, that's quite a, a testimony. It had a huge impact on the crowd. So much so, and, and this is the reason I think we have the, the urgent language here, so much so that, that John says... They wanted to take him and make him a king. Take him by force. That's John six fifteen. Therefore, when Jesus perceived that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, he departed again to the mountain by himself alone. So, uh, Jesus sends away the disciples. And he sends away the multitudes. He didn't come to be a king in the sense that they're, they're thinking. And he wasn't going to, going to allow that. And now he departs to pray. Seek solitude with, with the Father. So he sends uh, the disciples away. He sends the crowds away. And then verse 23, When he had sent the multitudes away, he went up on the mountain by himself to pray. Now, when evening came, he was alone there. Now, remember, he's, he sent the disciples to the other side of the lake, so they're, they're making their way through the night. They're making their way across the lake. And Jesus is now alone on a mountain praying. Verse 24. But the boat was now in the middle of of the sea, tossed by the waves, for the wind was contrary. Now, I don't, I don't think it's an accident that Jesus is alone praying at the moment the disciples enter this fierce storm. And I think we ought to find great comfort in that. Uh, I, I think we can assume, at least in part, this may not be his sole uh, object here in prayer, but I think we can assume, at least in part, he's praying for the disciples. And so it's like the writer of Hebrews says even now, he is, he is always interceding for us. And boy, what an example... An exhortation for us to do the same. To, to lift up one another in prayer. Have you ever felt um, a burden to pray for somebody and then uh, maybe later find out that they were going through something at that specific time? Or maybe you never found out anything like that, but, you, but that may have been the case anyway. So, while they're entering the storm, Jesus is praying. And I also find it interesting that the Son of God, God in flesh, sought to spend time alone with His Father in prayer. It was, it was considered a priority. 
Matthew Henry says, Those are not Christ's followers that do not care for being alone, that cannot enjoy themselves in solitude when they have none else to converse with, none else to enjoy but God and their own hearts. That's, that's a, a part of the discipline of a Christian life, in other words. To spend time in prayer. I like the old song. I like the, the melody for one thing. Sweet hour of prayer. Here's, here's one of the verses. Sweet hour of prayer. Sweet hour of prayer that calls me from a world of care and bids me at my Father's throne make all my wants and wishes known. In seasons of distress and grief, my soul has often found relief and oft escaped the tempter's snare by thy return, sweet hour of prayer. Or Fanny Crosby in, in the song, I Am Thine, O Lord, wrote, O oh, the pure delight of a single hour that before thy throne I spend when I kneel in prayer and with thee, my God, I commune as friend with friend. And that's the essence of prayer, communion with God. Intercession is the purpose in it. And again, I, I think that probably that's what Jesus is doing here. Now, we do know this for sure, um, that Jesus knows what's going on with the boat. The, the parallel passages for this are in Mark 6, Mark 6, 40, if you want to look at these later or something, Mark 6, 45 through 51, and John 6, 15 through 21. You have, you have the same account told from two other authors. And Mark writes this in, in, uh, in Mark 6, 47 and 48. Now, when evening came, the boat was in the middle of the sea, and he was alone on the land. That is, Jesus was alone on the land. And he saw them straining at rowing. That's, that's always fascinating me. Now, I've never been to, to Israel. I've never, you know, stood on the mounts around, <laughs> around the, the uh, Lake of Gennesaret there. Um, so, I, I don't know. I don't know. Can you see from one side to the other or what? But I, but I know this. While, while they're in the midst of a violent storm at night, John tells us it was already dark. So, they're in the midst of a storm at night, and Jesus is alone praying with eyes on them. He saw them. He saw them in the midst of the storm. He saw them straining at rowing. Now, I think you've got a... a, Obviously, this is a historical event, but I I think you've got a beautiful analogy here of the kind of things that we go through in life. Like I was, if you were here yesterday, like I was talking about at the funeral yesterday, we all face hardship, suffering in some form. It's it's common to all men. In the passage I read yesterday from Job 14, every man faces trouble. Man is of the his life is a few years. Job said, and full of trouble. And so, to some degree, everybody faces those things. Now, for the Christian, and this is one reason I was asking earlier, who do you say Jesus is? For, for the Christian, what bearing does the identity of Christ have on your present circumstances, whatever they are? If, if you think them to be good or if you think them to be bad. Does Jesus have any bearing, um, practically speaking, on your circumstances? Well, sometimes we're going through what we think to be good times, and those may actually be the worst, because uh, those, those, those may be the times where we have a tendency to drift as far as our relationship with God. Other times, we, we know the sky is falling, like the roof is caving in on us. How does it make a difference that we know Christ? I'm, I'm assuming that these men at this particular time, they, now, let me say, they should have known better, but then again, so should we all. But I'm assuming at this particular time, in, in this storm, you know, the wind, all of a sudden the wind kicks up and the storm gets fierce and it looks like they're all going to die 
And I'm assuming they feel alone. It would have been much better, just just humanly speaking, speaking from the flesh, I mean, I can identify. (laughs) It would have been much better, right, if Jesus had been in the boat. At this point, they're probably thinking, we should not have left His side. We're all going to die. Um, you know, here, here we are. He, he sends us across the lake and, uh, you know, Satan's going to take the opportunity, uh, kill us all. We're all going to die. And, and, you know, Jesus doesn't know. Of course, if you remember a few chapters back, even when Jesus was in the boat, they, they, they start crying out, Lord, don't you care that we're, we're all perishing? And we tend to do that sometimes, don't we? But here's the thing. Jesus saw. He saw. He saw them. He saw them straining at rowing. So, at this particular point, life is extremely hard for them and Jesus is totally aware of it. And again, I would guess interceding for them. It is, uh, and I'm going to quote again here from John, John chapter 6. It, it's a dark picture of a dark time in life. J- John says it this way in John 6, 17. It was already dark. And Jesus had not come to them yet. Boy, you, you, don't we see that played out a lot in the Psalms? The heart of the, of the psalmist is just crying out, because of the dark times and, and pleading with God, come, 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 make your presence known. Like in Psalm 139, we read earlier, destroy the wicked, Lord. You know why? Because he's, he's being oppressed. It's a, it's a dark time. He's in a storm. And it looks like there's no hope. It's, it's dark. It's very dark. And the Lord hasn't come yet. The old Puritans used to say, and I, I, I think this is true, and I think uh, beneficial to recognize this and think on it. For the truly saved, of course, God doesn't remove His presence, right? He said, I mean, we know the, the promises. He'll never leave us nor forsake us. Jesus said, Lo, I'm with you always to the end of the age. In John, when He promised to send the Comforter, He Himself... You know, I'm sending another comforter. And then he also says, I will be with you. He doesn't forsake his people. But the old Puritans used to say that he does sometimes withhold the knowledge of his presence. In other words, you may lose the feeling of his presence. Now, perhaps that's just training for us, right? Because sometimes... Sometimes it's, it's even almost tangible and you think, well, I, f- I feel the presence of God. But the Bible never teaches us to put any kind of trust in that. And so there are other times that you don't feel the presence of God. Here's the case. The, the disciples are in the boat in the midst of the storm. Where's Jesus? He's not there. And so they, they may think that He's not aware or that He doesn't care. Lord, don't You care that we're perishing? So, so take heart. He knows. He saw them. And He saw them straining at rowing. So yeah, it's a very dark period. It's in the, the fourth watch of the night. It's dark. And Jesus hasn't come yet. But, and that's what's about to change. <clears throat> verse, um, verse 25. Now, in the fourth watch of the night, Jesus went to them, walking on the sea. Now, is, is this not a demonstration of God's, of God's power, 
over circumstances. Circumstances that terrify us. For example, he could have, had he wanted to, well, he could have just transported himself, you know, like he did Philip. But he, he could have walked around the beach all the way to the other side and said, you know, I'm going to be there for them when they get here so I can comfort them. He, he could have he could have done a different type of miracle. He could have just, before he stepped on the water, he could have just said, peace be still and calmed the storm, grabbed another little boat, assuming there's one by, and rode out there to him. Or, he, you know, maybe he could have yelled loud, loud enough or something and told him to come back. But he, he could have just calmed the storm and done something like that. But instead, he chooses to walk right over it. The, the storm is raging, and Jesus is walking on the water. Have you ever thought about that? You, you almost picture sometimes when, I think people do, Sometimes when you think about the Lord walking on the water, it's like uh, you, you picture something like a swimming pool where it's just perfectly smooth. And he, and he just steps out there and walks across. And I've seen a lot of people attempt that. I mean, they make these little styrofoam boots and stuff like that. and They're, they're going to walk on water, right? Um, but I've never seen one attempted in a wave pool or something like that, you know. Never seen them do it in a hurricane. It's always a little pool of some kind, and they still can't do it. You know, even with the we we saw one. Leslie and I were watching some science show one time, and that was kind of the way they you know like they the, they get you for the next scene. We're going to demonstrate. You know, we can walk on water. Well, they had used I don't even remember what the substance was, but that they were mixing with water, and they had made it so dense that you could walk across it if you went, well, actually run. If you went really fast, you could go across it without sinking. <laughs> so, so, it, so it was nothing like the biblical miracle. There's a storm raging here. So, I mean, you've got to picture, you've got to picture waves, wind blowing like crazy, and probably driving rain. That's what Jesus is walking in. When he comes walking across the sea, he comes to them on the sea. That is in the midst of the storm. It's it's still dark. It's still stormy. It's every all of those things are still the same. Everything's still in place. It's a it's a frightening time for the disciples, and this is when Jesus comes. In, in the midst of that, in the midst of that trouble. <clears throat> I like to read um, church history. I love to read about, you know, saints of old. And I'm obviously yet in the scriptural, the ones in scripture too, but also the ones in church history, many of whom have laid down their lives for the sake of the gospel. And you read about men and women being tortured. There's, there's a pastor today that you know, Brother Carl mentioned Wednesday night, um, is jailed in Iran, and it looks like um, that it's, it's going to cost him his life. He's a Christian pastor in Iran. Yes, that's the same country that a week ago uh, Ahmadinejad said was a model for the rest of the world. Here's a, here's a man condemned to death for his Christian witness. And, you know, the verdict is still out in that case. And we don't know. We don't know what they're going to do. Are they, are they going to execute him? Or is he going to somehow be acquitted? But it, it appears like he's ready to lay down his life if that's what it takes. Because he's refused to recant. And you hear stories like that and you say to yourself, probably if you're like me, or you say to yourself, what would I do in that situation? Now, I'm, I'm weak. I would, I would crumble. And R.F. Gates told me years ago, 
The Lord doesn't give you grace to worry about something. He gives you grace to go through it. In other words, you don't, you don't need the grace until it happens. And, and perhaps that same pastor, if, if, if the shoe were on the other foot, maybe he'd be standing here saying, boy, what would I do if I had to go through that? But now he's in it. And in the midst of the storm, Jesus comes. And in verse 26, when the disciples saw Him, and remember again, He's in the middle of this storm. He's coming, walking on the water, walking on the sea. Verse 25. And when the disciples saw Him walking on the sea, they were troubled, saying, It is a ghost. It's the word phantom there. An apparition. I guess they're thinking, you know, it's kind of almost like hallucinations or your life flashing before your eyes or something. You know, sure enough, we're goners now. We're seeing spirits walking around out here. It's a ghost. And they cried out for fear. And by the way, that word uh, in the New King James, troubled, says they saw him walking on the sea and they were troubled. That's, that's, That's a very strong word. It's more like terrified. I mean, they, they, they are stricken with fear here. They're, they're terrified and they cry out for fear. And it's the Lord. It's, it's their help. And I wonder sometimes even that. If, if some circumstances... If, if we ought not see them as, as the Lord at work. Some, some of the same things that scare us are the hand of God. Often working to deliver us. When Jacob's sons went into Egypt, and you remember the story, Joseph was sold into captivity, and so, of course, he... He mourned, mourned Joseph. And then years later, uh, when there's a, a famine, you know, by this time Joseph is second in command over all Egypt, second only to Pharaoh. Of course, Jacob and his family don't know that. And there's famine, and Jacob sends the rest of his sons down into Egypt to get grain, to buy grain. And Joseph knows who they are. Who they are. He knows it's his brothers, but he... Uh, he pretends like he doesn't know them. They don't recognize him. And he pretends like he doesn't know them. He, he, he asks if they have any other siblings. They say, well, we've got one. And it's, it's his, his brother, his, his full brother, Benjamin. And he says, you know, go back and get him. He, he just wants to see his brother. But he tells them, he tells him, I think you're a bunch of spies and I don't believe your story. If you really got another brother, go back and get him. And they try to tell him, sir, we can't do that. Our father would, you know, die. He would croak. He He's already lost one son. They're standing there talking to him and don't know it. He's already lost one son. We can't bring the lad. Our father won't allow that and he won't, he won't survive it. But he demands that they do it. So they go back and they get Benjamin and they bring him. You remember what Jacob was saying through all of this? Everything's against me. Oh yeah, he got upset when they came back and they said, you know, we... This man up in Egypt, he's demanding that we bring Benjamin back. And Jacob says, everything's working against me. I've lost one son. Now I'm going to lose another one. And what was actually happening there was God was providing deliverance for His family. Now sometimes it's the very thing that scares us, that we think is working against us. That is actually our deliverance. They think it's a ghost, an apparition. And I'm glad, you know, again, here's this word immediately, and I, I like the fact that it's right here. <laughs> but immediately, because they are terrified, and immediately Jesus spoke to them. So you've, you've got his, his presence and His Word right on time, injected, as it were, into the circumstances. 
And He spoke to them, Be of good cheer. It is I. Do not be afraid. Well, those are comforting words, to say the least. But listen, you and I, here we are 2,000 years later in the comfort of this building, and we read that, uh, and and it can almost sound just kind of cliche. Be of good cheer. Be of good cheer. Like, let not your heart be troubled. you, You tend sometimes to just take it too lightly. Be of good cheer. Jesus says, it is I. Don't be afraid. Don't fear. I remember again, the storm is raging here. The threat, the threat is still there. But they do now have the Lord on the scene. Now they're aware. He was watching before. He wasn't, he wasn't absent. He hadn't fallen asleep. He didn't fall down on the job. He, he knew everything that was going on. Why do you think he sent him across the lake? The, the storm didn't surprise him. And now they have Jesus on the scene, but the physical threat is still there. The storm is raging, and yet Jesus, in the midst of it, tells them, be of good cheer. And don't you want to say, or doesn't, doesn't your flesh cry out in a time like that, Lord, make the wind and the waves stop, and then I'll be happy. <laughs> I'll just exhibit all kinds of cheer. If you remove the threat. But it's in the midst of it. And it's like so many have pointed out before. You've probably heard this said. But what Jesus does before He deals with the storm going on around them, He deals with the storm going on inside of them. He speaks to their heart. Be of good cheer, it is I. Do not be afraid. Verse 26 says, They were terrified and they cried out in fear. And Jesus says, Don't don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. How can you possibly say that at a time like this? Because He's in control of everything that's going on. And they they haven't got this in their head yet. They just left, they just broke camp where, where he fed probably 10 or 12,000 people with five loaves and two fish. They just witnessed that. And everybody was so excited about that that they wanted to take him by force and make him a king. And I wonder if the disciples, the twelve, I wonder if they weren't in on that. Now, I think maybe that's why he told them to leave too, part of the reason. Part of the reason is to go through this. But they, they just left they just left that scene. And they still don't understand who he is. That's that's why he can say, Be of good cheer, don't be afraid, even in the midst of the storm, because he controls the wind and the waves. And whatever it is that's blowing in, in your life and in my life, he's in control of it. And if you're a Christian today, that is, if you know the Lord, you've been saved by the grace of God, then then you can say wherever you are that this is part of God's path for me. This is where He has placed me. And you can go further than that. Based on Romans 8.28, you can say, He's doing it for my good. Now, when you're in the midst of it, when you're in the midst of it, it it's, that's, hard to, that's hard to see sometimes. They don't, at this point, they don't see that. But here Matthew is, years later, writing about it because he gets it <laughs> now. But by the time he's pinning this, he gets it. When he was on the boat, he didn't get it. They are where they are at this particular place and time and these particular circumstances by God's design. And Paul tells the Corinthian church that he, he never puts more on you than you can bear without also providing a way of escape. You know what that tells me? Whatever's in your life, Whatever's in my life, 
either God has provided a way of escape or you don't have more on you than you can bear by God's grace. I mean, it wouldn't take much to crush any one of us just left to ourselves. but I mean, God grants grace like we were talking about a moment ago. He grants grace to bear it. I had a lady tell me one time, God must think I have some big shoulders because He keeps putting stuff on me. No, it ain't that. He knows our frame. He knows how frail we are. He remembers that we are dust. No, it's, it's, He didn't put all of that on Job because He thought Job was such a strong man. It's because He was strong. And He is strong. God. Job persevered, endured because of God's grace. So either you don't have more on you than you can bear, if you're a Christian now, I'm not saying this applies to everybody, but to Christians. You either don't have more on you than you can bear, or God has provided a way of escape, or, or, or He's about to, or something. You know, He's going to provide a way of escape. That, that's a promise you can cling to. Verse 28. This, kind of, this, almost, uh, this almost calls for another whole separate sermon here. This is kind of a side note. <laughs> this, this incident with Peter. But we're going to, we're going to try to take it in with this. Because <clears throat> this, this, this is an amazing thing to me. Peter answered him and said, Lord, if it is you, command me to come to you on the water. Isn't it interesting that the Lord... Honors that, and and he's he knows hearts. He's the heart knower. I mean, evidently Peter's not, you know, doing anything here out of out of uh, like just whatever, really questioning him or doing it out of show or whatever. I, I think it it really is a way of, of of saying, Lord, if it's you. I mean, they were thinking it was an apparition, a phantom. And, and the Lord speaks to them, it's me, don't be afraid. Well, Peter says, if it's you, bid me come. This, this is one of the things that I, I if I can just kind of uh, give you a little bit of application on this. This is one of the things I try to challenge unbelievers to do when I talk to them. And this is one reason I ask them, uh, you know, have you read the Bible? You know, people say, well, I don't believe in God or I don't believe in the Christian God or whatever it is, you know. I don't. Okay, have you read the Bible? And, and like I said earlier, most of the time you... No. Well, here's, here's what I'm, I want you to do. And usually I, usually I suggest that they read John. Read the Bible. <laughs> what I'm saying is, put it to the test. See, see if He really is who He says He is or not. Seek Him. Make, make it a front burner issue. And if you haven't read the Bible, it's, it's not a front burner issue. I mean, you just, in other words, you've just made up your mind. And like I said, I think this is most usually the case with unbelievers. You've just decided, because you don't want it to be true, you've just decided that it's not true. You, you haven't investigated it. Now, if you really want to know if Christianity is true or not, then you start asking Him, Lord, if it's You, bid me come. Bid me come. And, and here's the astounding thing, and this has always fascinated me, even in this case with Peter. Verse 29, Jesus responds, Come. <laughs> that, that is good. I mean, what, don't you kind of, wouldn't you kind of expect, if, if you didn't know, I know you've all, probably all read this before, but if you didn't know that was there, it, it just seemed, it seemed like Jesus would say, what's the purpose, son? Or, you know, or I don't, I don't have anything to prove to you. Or why do you need to walk on water? You see me walking on water. I, I'm doing the miracles because I'm the Son of God. You don't need to do miracles. You just need to observe and believe. I mean, it just fascinates me that Jesus tells Peter, 
Come on. Some of John's disciples started following Jesus when they saw John baptizing. And Jesus, Jesus turned around and looked at them and said, what do you seek? <laughs> That's a great question, isn't it? What do you seek? And they said, well, Lord, where do you live? And he said, come see. I mean, that's encouraging. And that's, that's an encouraging word to give to people that are lost. Tell them that the Lord said, He that cometh unto me, I will in no wise cast out. Do you, do you really want to know truth? Then you pray and you ask the Lord, Lord, if it's you, if you're really real, if you're not just a phantom, an apparition, a wish, a product of men's weak men's imagination, if that's not the case, if you're real, if it's you, bid me come. And I think I can say with the authority of this passage and the others that I just mentioned, that the response will be, come. That's, that's what my wife and I found. A couple of years ago, we had a young lady sit in our living room, a little Bible study we did, and, and, I, and she told that almost the same exact story. Because she was, you know, she just didn't accept Christianity, wasn't a believer. She said, well, what I started doing was asking God, if you're real, make me know. Open my eyes to it. You know what? <laughs> he did. He did. He said, come. Come. And when Peter came down out of the boat, he walked on the water to go to Jesus. Now, whatever we can say about the next verse and about Peter sinking, I'm going to say a couple things about that before we close. But remember this first. He did walk on water. It wasn't long, but he did it. All right? And the, the Lord said, come. And the Lord enabled him to do it. But, here's the problem. He... he he didn't stay focused. You know, Leslie gets on Jordan all the time about losing focus. I know y'all are shocked and amazed that that would be the case, but uh, I have that problem too. But at any rate, Peter lost focus. So I guess we can, those of us that have that problem, I guess we, we can be encouraged here. And we're not the first. Peter lost focus. Verse 30 says, When he saw that the wind was boisterous, he was afraid. And beginning to sink. So, see what happened? Instead of looking at Jesus and staying focused on Jesus, he started looking at circumstances. He started focusing on the circumstances. And it's amazing because he's walking on water. Now, I don't know if he looked down to, you know, just kind of check it out. See, well, boy, my feet are actually staying on top. However it took place, he started noticing the waves and the wind again. And so he started to sink. He got his eyes off Jesus and he started to sink. Spurgeon said, when you set your eyes on Jesus, peace alights on your heart like a dove, on your breast like a dove. When you set your eyes on the dove, it flies away. You've got to keep your eyes on Jesus. He took his eyes off Jesus. He began to sink. But I love this next part. He began to recite an eloquent prayer. Lord, God of our fathers, God of Abraham, God of Isaac, God of Jacob, the Lord our God is one. And, you know, and recite the Shema and all that. Here was his prayer. I'll keep it low so I don't hurt your ears. But I don't think Peter kept it low. Here it was. Lord, save me. And now that is a cry from the heart. It may not be very eloquent. <clears throat> but it's effective. And everybody, I think, in this room that knows the Lord can identify with that prayer. Maybe it wasn't in those exact words, but it was, it was 
Just, just a different verbal expression of the same heart's cry. Lord, save me. And there's that word again. Verse 31. Immediately. <laughs> immediately, Jesus stretched out His hand and caught him and said to him, Charles Spurgeon said that word immediately is a business term. I mean, in other words, you know, taking care of business. <laughs> immediately, Jesus not wasting any time. Jesus cried, or Peter rather cried out for help. Lord, save me. And immediately Jesus stretched out his hand and caught him and said to him. Now, now hang on just a minute. We've got two things here. One, so comforting, isn't it, that the Lord acts immediately, grabs Peter, and stops him from sinking. I mean, He lifts him right back up. Now, again, the Lord is not, physically speaking, the Lord is not standing on solid ground here. He's standing on the water. And the storm is still raging. Now, if I'm going to try to pull you out of anything, I'm going to try to at least make sure that my feet are on good, solid ground, if at all possible. But again, it's just a demonstration of His power. Peter may sink. You and I may sink. The Lord's not going to sink. And you know what? You and I aren't going to sink because the Lord will grab you and pull you up. So immediately Jesus acts, caught Him, but uh-oh, now, now there's a rebuke. Oh, you of little faith, why did you doubt? Now, obviously, all of us, if we're honest, all of us here are going to be sympathetic with Peter. We're going to think, well, you know, I mean, that's, that's, there's a storm going on and the idea of walking on water and then you start sinking. I mean, it's a scary, scary, scary situation. Of course you would doubt, right? Of course you would doubt. Anybody would doubt. Well, maybe we would, but we should not. Because I don't care if it's Hurricane Katrina. It, the power of it, of this storm, is minuscule compared to the power of the Lord Jesus Christ. He said, no man will snatch you out. Nothing. Nothing's going to snatch you out of my hand. Is he going to lose someone to a storm? No. He keeps us. And he wants us to believe that. So he says to Peter, you of little faith, why did you doubt? In other words, all the evidence points to who I am. All the evidence points to my power. I've cast out demons. Demons have cried out before me saying, You're the Holy One. Why have you come to torment us before our time? He has spoken to disease and it just immediately vanishes. He creates enough food to feed a multitude from just a few fish and loaves. He raises the dead. All the evidence says... This one should be trusted. And you see why there's a rebuke? You of little faith. That is, you don't trust. You, you, you've got very little trust. And that, that is evidence of the hardness of our hearts. And I have to include us there. Our. Because that's, I think we would do the same thing Peter did. And unfortunately, we probably often do when the Lord deserves total trust. But again, it's just, I think what we could call a soft rebuke. In other words, the Lord doesn't let go of him and say, well, you know, you don't believe anyway, so <laughs> swim if you can make it, you know. No, he, he pulls him on up and in the boat. When they got into the boat, the wind ceased. Now they're safely back in the boat. And now, well, the storm is still raging, but relatively safe. 
Now they get back into the boat. Now the Lord makes the storm cease. Now, as I mentioned, He could have done that at the very start. But obviously, they needed to go through this. And we're starting to get somewhere here. I mean, this, this is why they needed to go through it. Look at verse 33. Then those who were in the boat came and worshipped Him, saying, Truly, you are the Son of God. You see what they do now? It's like Job. They worshipped Him. I guess we should point out a significant difference though. Job was still in the storm when he was doing it. I mean, he just got news that he lost all his children, all his possessions, and he said, he, and he worshipped, and he said, Blessed be the name of the Lord. The Lord gives, the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Shall we receive good from the hand of God and not evil? Job said. And that's what they should have done, and that's what we should do. It's worship all the way through. But now they're starting to get it. And so they worshiped and said, Truly, you are the Son of God. Now, there's no, just, there's no direct, uh, definite article here, so I mean, it, it could be translated a Son of God. Uh, that would be a legitimate translation, but I don't think uh, that is their meaning. And, and that's why probably your translation, just like mine, includes the article. Um, truly, you are the Son of God. Now, after, after this happened, <laughs> okay, they're, they're starting to get it. You're the Son of God, the Christ, and that's why you're going to see. As I said, we're building up to it. Peter's confession in Matthew 16. When Jesus said, who do you say that I am? You're the Christ, the Son of the living God. In verse 34, when they had crossed over, they came to the land of Gennesaret. And when the men of that place recognized Him, they sent out into all that surrounding region, brought to Him all who were sick, and begged Him that they might only touch the hem of His garment, and as many as touched it were made perfectly well. So again, more evidence that He is who He says He is. More evidence that he should be trusted. So, um, you know, we have to ask ourselves, do we trust the Lord as we should? The evidence demands a verdict, to, to put it again in Josh McDowell's words. The evidence demands a verdict. Who is this, this Jesus? He's the Son of God. If you're an unbeliever today, you, you've, got to, you've got to face that question, like it or not. Who is Jesus? We just read some of the evidence. There's, there's much, 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 much more. And it demands a verdict. If you're a believer today, we, we still, because we still deal with sin, as long as we're in this life, so we're still faced with this question every time we're confronted with issues in our daily life. Can the Lord be trusted? It's dark. He hasn't shown up yet. Maybe not. Maybe not in the way that we would prefer. But He is in reality there. He sees. And that doesn't just mean He's observing and hoping you make it. <laughs> No, he, he sees and He's doing something. He's controlling the circumstances. He's interceding for us. He's going to, in the end, bring us all safely to the other shore. Because He is indeed who He said He was. The Son of God. Would you stand, please? We're just going to close with a word of prayer. And just one final exhortation. Whatever you're facing uh, today, as a Christian, whatever you're facing today, 
um, know that the one who loves you more than you can possibly imagine has you in his grip and you are safe. You're safe. The famous Confederate General Stonewall Jackson told one of his men one time, I'm as safe on the battlefield as I am in my own bed. Because he he believed in the sovereignty of God. And if you're not a believer today, then again, the final exhortation, all the evidence is in. And it demands a verdict. It demands a decision on your part. Who do you say Jesus is? Find out. Investigate. Say to Him, Lord, if it's You, bid me come. Let's pray. This sermon is made available through the ministry of Fillmore Baptist Church in Princeton, Louisiana. Our desire is to faithfully proclaim the message of salvation which God has provided in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ our Lord. For more resources and information, please visit our website at www.fillmorebaptist.org. You may use the links there to contact us or write us at Fillmore Baptist Church, 6304 Highway 80, Princeton, Louisiana, 71067.